Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you've joined me today. I had promised to talk about honey and it's a funny thing. <laughs> a listener noted that in all these podcasts, I have not once talked about the process of harvesting honey and that really reveals how I feel about honey. I love honey. I love to eat honey, particularly on oatmeal, and I love to sell honey to my community. I love to give honey as gifts to some very special friends and family. But the truth is that harvesting honey, to me, is a big pain in the butt. It is a lot of hard work. It's heavy. It's sticky. It's messy. If you've done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I knew I was in for something when I first learned beekeeping. My mentor's mentor, who had a semi-commercial operation, she told me that he and his wife had an, had an agreement that she would go out of town one week. She'd go to visit her sister. And it was a particular week, and it was when he harvested honey. And the deal was that he did it in, in the house. And so basically, he would harvest all the honey and then do all the cleanup, and then she would come home as if it had never happened. And I thought that was a hilarious <laughs> workaround. If you've ever harvested honey in a kitchen, it is a mess. I feel so lucky. I do have a workshop room that's designated. Even then, it's a, it's just messy. Now, that's I have an extractor. I have an electric extractor. I'll tell you the whole story of all that, which really makes it easy. Bringing in supers of honey, sometimes they drip because they've been pulled apart from another honey, and then getting them out, they drip everywhere because you, you kind of want them warm to extract them. And so I will confess up front, I am not the best honey person. Now, I would be very upset if I did not have my own honey in the house. I Earlier this year, I was beginning to panic that this year might be the year that that happens just because our spring was so weird and late. We're getting a little bit of honey. <laughs> and if, if we don't have weather that makes all the, the bees eat up their same honey, then maybe, maybe we'll get some. But it, it's for me in my particular valley, it is not shaping up to be a great honey year. I just wanted to talk to you about, well, as you know, with everything in beekeeping, if there's one thing you want to get done, then there's 20 ways to get it done. And no particular one is necessarily better than another. It's just what's going to work for you. And usually you're going to have to try out several things before you figure that out. There are a few things that I want to emphasize up front, and I actually made some notes because it is really important. One of the most important things, beginners, is you want to harvest honey obviously out of comb that has never been treated with any chemical that's not approved for honey harvest. If I'm not mistaken, and y'all double check me on this, I believe that formic acid, the formic acid uh, treatments are the only ones that are approved to be, that are okay to use with honey supers on. Again, double check me on that because um, that's not my strongest knowledge base, but you never want to use comb that has been exposed to any of those chemicals for honey that you're going to feed to people. The other thing that's really important is you only want to harvest honey out of frames that are almost completely capped. I mean, if they're all capped, then you can pretty much rest assured that the moisture content of the honey is going to be right because the bees don't cap it until it is. Because I'm in such a wet rainforest climate up here in the mountains, that can be tricky. There's years that the bees just leave it uncapped and they're just trying and trying to, to dry it out. And we have a few emergency measures that people probably out in the Northwest might um, also use, and that is using a dehumidifier in your honey room. I'll talk about that. But so, so ideally, when you see frames that are mostly capped, then they are ready to harvest. Now, beginners, 
If this is your first year, I would really encourage you, if you take a frame to have a sample and so that you can taste what the honey is like, really think long and hard before you take much honey away from bees that are just drawing out. Because if you take it away and if your flow is done, then they are not going to have enough honey for the winter. You're going to have to load them up with sugar. If they go over winter just on sugar, in my opinion, they don't have as good a survival. So there's a lot of consideration. So if you're new, really try not to plan on any more honey than just a a tasting sampler. Now, if it's an overwintered hive and you have a good flow year, you're in business and you've got multiple frames and hopefully multiple supers full of capped honey. That's the ideal part. The moisture content of the honey is critical because if the moisture is too high, like if it's uncapped, then if the moisture is too high, it will ferment and it may, you can tell if you open a jar of honey and it has that kind of, kind of yeasty bread smell. I mean, it's trying its best to turn itself into mead, but not the good way. (laughs) So you definitely don't want that. Now you can get an exact reading on your honey with a refractometer and the prices of refractometers have really come down in recent years. I am going to confess here, I use the old-fashioned way, <laughs> and this is what I was taught. I've I've never had a jar of honey to ferment, and I've had some that got way pushed way back in the cabinet for years. It might crystallize, but it doesn't ferment. And this is the old-fashioned way, is if you take a frame from the super, and if it's um, mostly capped or capped, if you shake that frame over something that you can really see, like a table, if no drops fall out, then the moisture content is right. So I've actually had combs of honey that were only about half capped because I had taken it out a little early. Maybe there was a big stretch of rain coming. And if you take that and really shake it hard over a table or something you can see clearly and no drops fall out, then I personally have never had honey go bad. But I, if you're new, a refractometer, if you're going to do honey, a refractometer is a good piece of equipment to have. I plan to add one to my workshop. In the meantime, I'll be doing my vigorous shaking test. But if you're lucky enough to have frames that are completely capped, then the bees have acted as the moisture gauge, and it would be highly unusual for that to ferment. Now, the other thing, beginners, you've got to watch out for is you probably had to feed your bees sugar to get them to draw comb. And so if they have made honey off the sugar water, that's not really honey. (laughs) That's not really flower nectar. And so you want to be very careful not to use that for people. It's wonderful for bees, but you want to keep that separate. One thing that you'll get over time, and especially once you have a stash of drawn comb, honey becomes so much easier because when I begin to see the signs that the flow is on in my neighborhood, and that's something that your local mentors will help you with the, the signs of the blooms And then also over time, you will begin to see the behavior of the bees. They just are super busy. They're like going out with a real sense of purpose. At my particular farm, um, there's a lot of white clover in the lawns and the fields. And if I see the bees on the white clover, then I know I must not have much of a flow going on out there because that's just their fallback. But if there's tons of white clover and they're not on it and they're busily going out somewhere, then I, I know they've got some kind of flow. So getting to know the flow is something that will happen over time and really study up on that and ask lots of questions about your uh, local folks. Unfortunately, we can barely ask questions in person now unless you're on a Zoom call with your club. Sometimes there are online groups that are good enough to help you in your particular region. 
Now, for example, the North Carolina State Beekeepers Association group on Facebook, I mean, people just say, they'll just ask a bee question. And if you know anything about North Carolina, you know, we have about five completely different climates, really, you know, from the beach to the Piedmont to the mountains, and then the southern mountains are ahead of the northern mountains and all that type thing. So as I've said over and over, it's very local, and that is something that your local mentors. Now, another tip for beginners and also people who maybe are coming back into beekeeping after being out of it for um, years or decades, you once you take those supers off of the hives, you've got to get them harvested. You've got to get the honey out pretty quickly. And by that, I mean, in terms of um, depending on where you are, again, it could be within 24 to 48 hours if you're in a bad hive beetle area, because hive beetles, they will slime the honey I haven't had too much trouble with them here in the mountains, although we definitely have hive beetles, but just they're not terrible here the way they were in Arkansas. But they can really, they can ruin supers of honey really fast, and it's worse the warmer it is. You also don't want, you know, wax moths if they're in there. You just don't want anything getting in those supers. So once you take them off away from the protection of the bees, really you don't need to do that until you've got a plan in place, in my opinion, to get the honey out. I think in the old days, I've heard that they could just set supers of honey up, you know, for, I don't know, long time and then extract when they had it all together. But unfortunately, that is a, a thing of the past. I mentioned earlier that the dehumidifier trick, and if you live in a very wet climate, this is something that my mountain mentor taught me. And that is if you've got supers of honey that you're a little concerned about, maybe almost completely capped, but uh, not completely capped, and you're worried about the moisture in those cells diluting and getting basically getting it wet, the honey that's in the cap cells. So a trick he taught me was to take my dehumidifier, which if you live up here in the mountains, you have one, <laughs> to take the dehumidifier and put it in a small room with a strong fan and your supers. And basically it blows really dry air around the supers and finishes drying out the honey that maybe the bees were unable to if like this week it's going to be 95% humidity outside and rain, then they would have a very hard time, if not impossible, to get that honey dehydrated down. So those are a few of the tips. Get it out of there quick. You can use a dehumidifier in a pinch. A refractometer will answer the moisture level content for sure. And then the vigorous shake test is kind of the old-fashioned way. And also remember that honey, you always want to keep honey tightly sealed, not just to keep any critters from getting in there, but also because honey is, gosh, I cannot think of the word. Is it hydroscopic? I could be messing up that word, but basically it attracts water. It will interact with the atmosphere and attract water. And this is why I don't like those little decorative honey jars that have a hole in the lid and then have like a little wooden honey dipper in there. Most of them, or at least the ones I've seen and a couple of the ones I've been gifted with, the hole is bigger than the dipper. So that's a hole that would allow moist air to get into that honey. Now, if not a lot of honey in there, then you can probably eat it up before it gets too much moisture. But if it's a big jar, and some of them are, then that could easily absorb a lot of moisture and ruin the honey in there. And so I just, that's a pet peeve of mine. So if you're a decorative potter <laughs> and you're making a honey jar, that little hole that the honey dipper goes through either needs to be really tight around the dipper or there needs to be some kind of little gasket in there to, to seal the honey. At least that's my pet peeve on decorative honey jars. But you definitely want to not leave honey open 
in any in any way, and that is in your extractor, in any of your buckets that you're extracting into. I use the five gallon food safe plastic buckets. I got the uh, I got a set of them off Amazon. You can also buy them at your local bee store usually. And if you buy them at your bee store, they may already have the honey gate. And it's just a big nozzle on the end that you can open and close to jar your honey. So I have a couple of those buckets with the honey gate on it. And those are the ones I use for putting the honey in the jars. And then I have a whole bunch of buckets that do not have a honey gate on them so they, they don't leak. And they have the lids and I put the lids on tight. I, I sometimes hammer them on uh, tight if I'm going to keep that honey in the bucket for any length of time before I jar it. And as you get into this, you'll get all the, I mean, the big commercial people, I mean, they have big pieces of stainless steel equipment to do all this. Even, you know, selling quarts and quarts and quarts and quarts of honey, I have gotten by just fine with with my bucket system. So anyway, those were a few high points. Now, most people are harvesting honey in any kind of quantity. This is where the standard equipment comes in really handy because it is designed It's designed to go in the extractors, for example, and the extractors are honey spinners. You can get the manual kind. I I had a manual kind that I bought from a guy in a parking lot. (laughs) Beekeeping will will get you to that point where, you know, you buy bee equipment in the McDonald's parking lot of somebody you found on Craigslist. But that's pretty literally what happened when I was in Arkansas. I saw someone told me that there was a a well-made manual extractor on Craigslist. So I got the guy on the phone immediately and we met in a McDonald's parking lot and, you know, did the swap. It's so funny selling things out of your trunk when you're a beekeeper. Uh, It was a great, it was an old fashioned, very well made. I loved it that the, the handle had obviously broken at some point in the past and somebody had made a metal handle, a beautifully made metal handle with a wooden knob on it to spin. What I found is once I got Um, more than about eight hives going, or I should say more than about eight honey hives going, you know, my forearms began to look like something off a muscle building (laughs) ad and it was just not good for good for my joints. And also I developed the bad habit of telling myself that while I was harvesting honey in the evenings, if I was spinning with a manual extractor, I could have as much wine as I wanted. And that just wasn't good for me. So I upgraded to a uh, uh, electric extractor and now I'm back on my um, red wine limit while I'm extracting. I, I know that beer is the traditional drink of honey extractors, but I'm, I'm a red wine person. So anyway, the manual extractor was fine. All extractors, you uncap the frame in some manner and stick it in the extractor and spin it either with hand power or electric power. It's delightful. It makes it way too easy. The trick with those is just getting them balanced so that they don't rock like a off-balance washing machine. Don't need all that equipment to get your honey out. If you just have a couple few hives, there are so many easy ways. There is the crush and strain method, and that's where you uh, crush the comb and kind of drain it out essentially in a colander over a bucket in your kitchen. That that would be hard on me <laughs> psychologically, because as you've heard me say a thousand times, the drawn comb is such a treasure to the bees. And if you have a stash of drawn comb that you protect from critters and wax moths as best you can and vigorously, and it's worth buying an old used freezer just to keep all your stuff in over the over the winter. And on that note, I have a friend who lives in an off-grid house is just on solar power. She told me that she found she has a big giant chest freezer that some neighbor gave her and she keeps her drawn comb in there over the winter. And she said that 
because of her solar setup, she doesn't want the freezer running all the time. So since it's closed, she can run that freezer for just a couple hours a day. It might be like an hour in the day, an hour in the evening. I'm not sure exactly. You'd have to work it out. But it will keep everything fine. It will keep comb. Now, she doesn't have food in there, obviously, but it will keep comb, you know, nice and uh, wax moth free. And I think that is a great idea. But I digress. As important as any honey you get is to protect the comb you get it out of. That is always a big deal. Okay, let me actually go back to my notes because I'm all over the place per usual. So the first part of honey is deciding, well, you know, figuring out if you have any, looking in your supers. You will quickly learn that you can just pick up a super and instantly know if it's about ready to go into your honey room or not. And you got to get it away from the bees. I have a couple of steps that I use that over the years I've found to be handy. One is under supering. And by that, I mean, I'm not sure if that's the technical definition of that word, but under supering, you have to be careful with, over, for example, over supering. That can either mean putting a whole bunch of supers on at once, um, which if you're not going to get back to a hive and you know they're going to be on a flow, if you've got drawn comb, you can put several supers on there and that way they can take advantage of it all, even without you going back and adding more. If you don't have that much equipment or you're not in that scenario, well, you know, there's the whole issue, as we've talked about before, that bees don't see foundation as ready to go. But if you have drawn comb, they will just start loading it up with honey if you have supers. And over time, you will get that technique of the just before the flow gets on, you'll get your supers made up. You can stretch out your drawn comb by doing every other comb, foundation, drawn comb, foundation, drawn comb. You'll also quickly find, for example, it's not exactly half and half. Now, I'm not sure in a 10 frame box if this is true, but in an eight frame box, I can really only get them to be drawing out three frames of foundation at a time. Well, like guaranteed, almost guaranteed to be perfect. And that is because the way the numbers work out, I like to have drawn comb up against the sides of the box. And then you can put a, a sheet of foundation and a comb and then a drawn comb. And anyway, the way the spacing works out, if I put three frames of foundation in there with the rest drawn comb, then they always draw it perfectly because I don't have it on the outside wall. If you have it on the outside wall and they get carried away, they can, you know, make it cattywonk, bigger on one side than the other. Because all my comb is interchangeable in, in every box and every frame is interchangeable, I really like to keep my comb brood size. And by that, I mean, if you notice in the brood nest of your hive, most of the comb is drawn out very perfectly. On the outside where they're storing honey, it can often have the big fat shoulders of honey and then up in the supers, they can just sometimes just go wild and, and draw big, chunky frames. And the catch that I've found about putting drawn foundation between honey frames is that sometimes instead of drawing the foundation, they will just enlarge the honey frame until it's two frames wide. <laughs> so they'll use the space, but not the foundation. So sometimes they can get weird on all that. But in the honey supers, you know, it, it hardly matters. And when you take the frame out, if you use an extracting one of the knives, then when you slice it off, slice the cappings off, it's going to reduce the size and then that comb can go back in anywhere. A lot of people use the nine frame in a honey soup and don't do this in the brood nest because that'll mess things up. In the honey super, I did that for years. And the principle is that if they draw these big wide frames of honey, uh, not only do you get much more honey per frame, those are that's fewer frames you have to extract, fewer frames you have to have, all that stuff. I, I just didn't, I don't like my comb being different sizes. I told you I was OCD and, and that I'm just not fond of that. 
uh, because then if I go to pull out a frame of drawn comb, it's like, oh man, that was a honeycomb and it's got these big fat shoulders and I'm either going to have to, you know, slice it off in some way so they can use it as a brood frame. I just like to keep all mine. So I keep the full number of frames in, in all the boxes, but lots of people who do honey use the nine frames or an eight frame, it would be seven frames to get the big, wide, fat honey frames up in their supers. And that is completely cool. It does make it very easy to use an extracting knife, which I don't, I don't actually use one of those, so I'll get into that in a little bit. But I was back to, <laughs> let's wrap back around to under supering. And by that, what I mean is, so I go out to a hive and the flow's coming on and I pick up that top box and man, they have beat me to it. That thing is almost full. That creates kind of a honey wall ab above them and that begins to force them downward. They start putting nectar in the brood nest. So if I've let it get that late, what I immediately want to do is to get them some instant room to store nectar so they won't begin clogging the brood nest with it because that reduces the queen laying. If it gets too bad, it can produce a crowding swarm out of season, which is kind of not that great. It's actually less great even than a swarm in a swarming season. So I take that heavy top super off. I set it aside now. I'm old, so I don't set it on the ground. I always set it either on the stand or another box. The other reason you never set it on the ground is it will get leaves and crap stuck on it and the bees hate that. I set it on the stand or set it on a box that I have there for that reason. So, And the other benefit is that then I don't have to lift it all the way off the ground. And I take my full super of drawn comb or alternated comb and foundation and I set it on the hive and then I put that full or nearly full super back on top. So I've under supered. I've put an empty super under the nearly full super. For me, this has several advantages. One is it gives them instant space that they can begin, if the flow's still on, they can begin filling up. But the other thing that's great for me is it means that when it comes time to pull off boxes, that top box is almost guaranteed to be full. Whereas you'll find as the flow is, is uh, finishing up, if you've just put boxes on top, sometimes they will not go up through that crowded honey super to take it up there. They will load up the brood nest. And then also, then you have to take off those partly empty boxes, pull frames out to get down to your full honey, your full honey supers. And I've just found that's really easy to, to put the fullest one on top and to super under that is a trick that I like to use. The other thing that I use during that honey portion of the year might be queen excluders. Now, not on everybody. What it is, is if you have a queen excluder on there and you know that the queen is below it, then once when it comes time to harvest honey, it's super easy because you can just pull those boxes right off the top. You know that there's no brood or queen in those boxes. It makes it much, much faster. And so there are some hives that for whatever reason, if I'm, if I'm sure that the queen is below, that I might put a queen excluder on there. I just use the plastic ones, throw a queen excluder on there, and then put my partly finished honey supers over it. If, they're, if it's partly in use honey supers, they will go through that queen excluder if you have a good population. If you don't have a good population of bees, or if there's nothing in that super, except foundation or even dry drawn comb, they may not consider that worth their while to go through the queen excluder. But I, I find it handy sometimes if I know that I'm just, I know I'm not going to have a lot of time, very possible that I use the queen excluder just for some ease of taking those boxes off. Now, so let's say you've got a super of honey on the hive and you know it's there and you know the queen and the brood's not on it. The uh, next challenge is to get the bees out of that super so that you can take the honey. 
They, around here, they call it robbing the bees, which I don't know, that sounds, it sounds so sad. <laughs> well, you guys know, you know, I really try my best to overwinter my bees on honey. So I don't take, definitely, I don't take it all. And there's the factor, and I know this sounds like anthropomorphizing. If you take all the honey, like all the honey, and be careful of this because it depends on the hive. I have some hives that just due to the tendencies of those bees that they keep a lot of honey in their brood nest. If you pull out a brood frame, they'll be brood in the middle and then they'll have uh, shoulders of honey and pollen around that. And then I have other hives that for reasons I don't understand, it is wall to wall brood and they put all their honey above. And those are the hives that you have to be careful because if you take off too much honey, you've literally taken off all the honey. They have virtually none in the brood nest. So particularly when you're new, until you get used to your bees, be aware of how much you're taking because they might have several boxes and you're like, oh, surely they've got honey in there, but be sure to look because they may or may not. And if you take too much honey, off at any time, even if there's still a flow on, I swear they look depressed and I swear they have a setback. <laughs> if they were people, it would just be the psychological setback of starting all over. But anyway, don't don't take it all. Be generous with your bees. Be cautious with you how much you take. So you've got this super that you, you really feel sure is excess honey. And now you want to get the bees out. Again, there's 10 ways to do it. I don't like I mean, some people use leaf blowers, which I just, I'm not fond of. First of all, I don't, I don't want dust and stuff being blown on, on my honey frames, but, but also I don't, I just don't like to do that to the bees and, and on my scale, it's just not necessary because I have, I do have the time. I use the escape boards and the kind I use are the kind that have a kind of triangle thing in the middle and the bees, you, you put that you, and be sure to notice which side is up <laughs> or it won't work. You put the side without the wire down where you want the bees to go because the wire side is the side they can't get back into. And then the side that just has the hole, you put that on the super side. You have to make sure, obviously, that the top, is, if you have a top entrance, that it's closed off. But the escape board just goes between the super and the rest of the hive. And it works on the principle that it's got that small hole that, that that's kind of a one-way exit. And the bees, when they lose the scent of the queen and the brood, they will mostly go back down into the hive. Now, the warmer it is, the less they do that, you know, because they're not having a cluster or anything. If you're harvesting honey late in the fall and it's chilly at night, this will clear every bee out of the super just overnight, easy, easy peasy, because they all go have to go down to cluster. But in the warmer seasons, that doesn't work. You'll still have bees in there. If if I do still have bees in there, I, I will take that super away from the hives because it is, it's just got a handful of, like a handful of bees in the whole super. Then I'll take it away from the hive and with a bee brush, just sweep them off and then dash that super into the workshop and close the door. Because if you leave that super sitting out, I had another friend who left it, who took a super off for some reason, set it down outside, got distracted. And she said that within like a couple hours, the bees had just pretty much robbed out the whole thing and taken it back. But, um, you know, you uh, believe me, I've done all these, all these things, but that particularly was pretty funny that the bees came and, and robbed it back. But you don't want to leave it outside, like not even for a few minutes because they will be on that. Then, then it is a mess to get it away from them. But the escape, the other trick with the escape boards, well, first of all, let me say this. If there's any brood in that box, they will not leave. 
on even with a skateboard because they were going to, they're going to stick with that brood. And so that will not work if for whatever reason you're trying to get bees out of a box that has brood in it. But hopefully there's no brood in your honey supers. You've looked, you've checked. And if you put in a skateboard on it um, above the hive, they will leave fairly reliably. Now, a, another trick that a local mentor taught me, and it works great, is if you take are taking supers off of several hives, and this is where the queen excluder comes in, because you you know for sure that there's no um, queen or brood in those in those boxes, and you make a stack. So what I do is I take an empty box, put it on the ground. I put my a skateboard on there in a way that even after they come out of the skateboard, they can still fly back to the hive. And then I might put a whole stack of supers and then I put another skateboard upside down on the top so they can get out by either the top or the bottom. And these are unrelated supers of bees. It is, they do kind of get in a fluster because they're all in there together all of a sudden. And and there may be some, some bee loss, but I haven't found it to be terrible if they can get out both the top and the bottom. That's another way to kind of get them out quickly. If you do that for any overnight, which is what I've done it sometimes, I set it right beside in the middle of the yard. It's inside the electric fence, in my case, the big stack of honey supers. And then I put an outer cover over the top because if you have that skateboard flipped, then if it rained, then uh, rain would get in there because there's a hole in the top. So you got to cover that. But that kind of stack of honey supers with escapes on overnight will get pretty much almost every bee out of there. And then I am ready to get it into the workshop. That's just my way. There's a thousand, thousand methods. I don't use the fume board that creates some type of odor that the bees hate. I understand that some of it, people, some of the odor people hate too. I, I just don't like that. I don't like the thought of exposing the honey to any type of smell or flavor. And this includes smoke because that's going to alter the taste of the honey. You don't want to smoke. As, you never want to smoke bees out of a out of a super because any open cells in particular will absorb that smoke flavor and you will taste it. That's pretty much how I, I get it away from the bees with the escape boards. I bring it into the workshop. Oh man, this, that's a point where I wish I had a golf cart or a four-wheeler because getting it from the bee yard to the workshop is a long haul. I take it in a wheelbarrow. It's heavy. I get a super workout during this time. Even in that trek across the field, it is covered because otherwise, especially if it's already gotten into robbing season, you could have a massive cloud of bees just by the time you get it back to the workshop. So that's that's how I do things. Nothing special about any of that. It's just it works for me. Now, some people harvest their honey at the end of winter. This is a way to be absolutely sure that the bees didn't need that honey. If you're in doubt, that's an option. If it's toward the end of winter, but you can see spring coming, then you can kind of judge of how much they still might might need. I've never done that, but I, I have heard of it. And then for varietal honeys, few, for example, in, in my area, we have an early spring flow on a good year, not this year in my neighborhood, of tulip poplar and locust. Tulip poplar is a very dark honey. Locust is very light honey. Well, I like to jar those separately, and it's actually not that hard to do. If those bloom at the same time, almost in, in many cases that you will find each frame, definitely each cell, has only one kind of nectar because bees have that nectar fidelity and they only put one kind of nectar in, in the cell. Mostly, a frame will either be mostly tulip poplar or mostly locust. And how I figure that out is I have a whole bunch of white plastic spoons. And then in the workshop, I just press the 
white spoon into the comb so that some honey runs in there. And against the white spoon, you can very clearly see what color it is. And so I will go through my supers. I will take all the ones with the lightest, lightest honey at that time, put them in one stack. And I'll take all the ones with the darkest honey, and which is most likely tulip poplar, and put it in another stack. Then I extract those separately. And that way, you really get to taste the individual flavors of the honey. Now, some people are in areas that don't have particular blooms at any given time, and they just have wildflower honey all the time. On the other hand, if you're in, for example, Tupelo country, then that's a very specific honey. And up in the Appalachians, it's sourwood. And that's another very specific honey that you're really trying to just get that type of honey, you know, as best you can so that you can get the flavor. But it turns out selecting by the color on the spoon, even if even if you just, yeah, even if you're not particularly sure what it is, if you extract your light honey separate from your dark honey, it's kind of fun to have those those really different flavors. So what I've learned is have, and again, if you have plenty of drawn comb, this is easy to do, that if there's a particular flow, like up here, one of the unusual flows is uh, basswood. And I understand they have a lot of that up in the Northeast. Also, basswood is almost minty flavor. A lot of people don't like it. Some people love it. It crystallizes quickly. I don't have a ton of basswood in my neighborhood. One of my mentors does. He would very specifically, when basswood was blooming, which he would identify with his binoculars, put on completely empty drawn comb supers because it's a, it's a short flow. And they would fill that up with that extremely light and extremely minty honey, which he would extract separately. That's a a fun thing to get the different flavors of honey. And if you're in a place that has particular variety, then that's something that's really worth learning to do because there have been, there's a lot of people in our area that just harvest it all and it all gets mixed in and it's delicious. But once you get the specific flavors, you can really, really get spoiled. Also important thing, you know, typically honey harvest season is usually when a flow has ended, which means whatever time of year it is, you are in robbing season. If it is, if there's no flow and the bees are flying, whatever time of year that is, that is robbing season. And that can get really ugly. You want to be very careful with your little nukes and your little queen castles, because if they get in a robbing mode, and I don't know what it is, but anytime they, like for example, I knew a guy who was a honey producer, and so after he uh, extracted his supers, he would just set them out. Uh, his workshop was well away from his bee yards and let bees rob all, I mean, they're licking the frames. <laughs> and and so they'll get them perfect and dry. That's one way. I don't set them out in the open because my workshop is not that far from my bee yard. It's just kind of across the pond. And so I don't let them do that just because I've noticed, because I also have little queen castles, little mating nuke. All the bees will get in a robbing frenzy and they'll start sniffing around other hives, seeing if they can get in if I open feed in any way. So I do no open feeding of any kind. That's just me personally my situation, um, and that includes wet supers. Now, wet supers, and by that I mean you've extracted the honey, but they're still wet, and they're drippy, and they're messy. You want to get those dried out, and pretty much the only way to do that is to have a bee clean them up. So the easy way, in my opinion, to do that is to put them on top of a hive, uh, make sure there's no upper entrance. Robber bees can come in and, and help with all the <laughs> robbing it out. If you put it over a hive, and if it's late in the season, if you're not going to use that again, I, I even put it over the inner cover, which has a hole in it. I stop up the top entrance, sometimes with screen, if it's hot and I still want to allow some ventilation. That way it's over, 
it's they're not going to make it part of the of the brood nest or part of their super because it's above that board. And of course, it has a um, a tight outer cover on top to seal it up because you definitely want that sealed up. And then the, so the bees from inside that hive can go in, lick all those frames clean. They will be dry as a bone. It usually doesn't. It, if it's a good population of bees, it, that can happen overnight. It might take a few days just depending on their mood and what else they're doing. You will see it. The comb will be dry as can be. And at that point, you can decide where that comb needs to go. I've been... uh all over the place per usual. And I just appreciate y'all are just the greatest listeners in the world. The emails you send me make my day every single day. Every single new patron makes my day. And there has been a lot of new patrons lately. And this is just, it really, really helps me. So a special warm thank you to each of you and also to every single person who listens and who tells a friend about the podcast, who leaves me a good rating on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate all those things. I'm wishing you the very best week. I hope your bee season is going so good. I will continue with all kinds of things next week. More about uh, extracting a little bit more (laughs) because I'm ready to talk about bees again. And then some about a honey tasting contest that I want to tell you about. Unfortunately, I didn't win. I didn't even place. And actually nobody in our whole region up here in the high mountains even placed in this particular contest. And I don't know that I've ever seen that. So I don't know, maybe last year wasn't a good tasting honey year, or maybe the judges just liked honey from other states. I don't know. I'll tell you about that next time. Have a wonderful week. No, I'm thinking about you, wishing you well. Please stay safe out there and stay healthy so that you can take care of your bees. All right. Bye.